your host for this podcast. It's that time of year again. Summer after a wet rainy spring with a gazillion gallons of rain and now we're in a 16-day stretch with no rain in the immediate forecast over 40%. Good thing we have the garden irrigated and troughs out for the livestock. Rains began for the year in a fairly normal manner, then things went sideways. In January, we had a little heavier than average, 7.73 inches. Back to normal in February with 4.09 inches. Heavy again in March with 9.39 inches. And back to normal in April at 4.76 inches. In May we received 16.28 inches, and so far in June, 3.02 inches divided between two rains in the first two weeks. The last two weeks of June have been zero. That totals up to 45.27 inches. Our annual rainfall averages 45 inches. What the hell? We do measure our rain numbers by the hundredths, and every morning the reading is sent to Kokoras, the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. With over 20,000 volunteers, they record precipitation nationwide and even in some territories. The link is on our website, highly recommended. To understand why these rain numbers, which might not seem like a big deal to you, but are significant to us, you have to look at our geology. Our farm is 300 feet below the Ozark Plateau, as I call it, the plateau and ridge lines along which the road system is set, you know, where highways are laid. These routes followed the game trails and paths traveled by Native Americans, and later were used by horse-drawn wagons. Down in our hollow, the topsoil can vary in depths between scant to none, as in on top the slabs of limestone on the rocky glade, or it can also be 10 inches deep at the base of the pastures. Water soaks into the soil and runs downhill under the vegetative layer and above the rock slabs. At time, there is no place for the excess water to go except to pool above the slabs and the ground becomes a soggy mess. On the opposite side of things, once that layer of soil above the slab dries out, the ground will bake, cracking deep within just a couple weeks if there is no vegetation overhead to protect it. Interestingly, underneath the slabs and limestone are caverns and a multitude of tunnels. Over the millennia, the calcium and dolomite have eroded from the rocks, leaving all kinds of passages. Once, we were pounding in a T-post behind the house, and it went from five feet down to one foot, 
we'd hit an underground chamber. The creek that runs along the drive will carry water all the way down to the road and mailbox, but when the flow begins to slow, the water will suddenly just disappear going underground. Yep, there's a term for this, karst topography. Limestone and dolomite layers that will erode with chambers, tunnels, and sinkholes. Down the road a ways, there's a field that will gush up water in one spot like a bubbling spring if the water table is high and there's a great underground push of water from the surrounding hills. It is interesting to see. There's also a similar outlet in the middle of the road. Once after heavy rains and lots of water flooding, Verlin's school bus was coming down the sandy road to our house when the front axle dropped into a pit of watery sand. Not quicksand per se, but the water was coming up out of the ground and had made a huge soft patch. The tow truck that came to get the school bus also got stuck, as did the second wrecker. The school sent another bus and the kids were transferred over. It was an adventure. The bus never did make it to our driveway, and Badger had a reprieve from school for the rest of the week. The following is my own abbreviated geological history of the Ozarks, and I cannot vouch that it is 100% accurate, as it is over a couple thousand years old. The Ozarks, principally the Washita Mountains south of us in Arkansas, were formed back before the Pangaea Age. I think it was called Rodinia. I'm not sure. That geological time when all the continents had last become reconnected. It's thought that the continents had formed, bunched up, and drifted apart on more than one occasion. This last reconnection and collision of the continental plates smooshed up the Washita Mountains, triggering volcanic eruptions which formed even more mountains, hence the Crater of Diamonds area in Arkansas. These mountains are thought to be the older tail end of the Appalachian Range and spread westward into Texas. Then, 200 million years ago, the supercontinent of Pangaea began to break apart. Plate tectonics at work. The hot springs in Arkansas? Kind of makes sense in a way now, doesn't it? The Great Plains of the United States were formed by erosion and sediment deposit from the Rockies. The Piedmont region of the Carolinas was formed by the same process from the Appalachian Mountains, all from erosion, wind, and water. It's hard to imagine these mountain ranges being so much larger than they are today. Receding glaciers from the north helped form the waterways, which became the Mississippi Valley. Our farm is just north of the Washita Mountains and at the eastern edge of the Plains and Kansas Flint Hills. Creeks and rivers located to the north of the Ozark Plateau flow in a northerly direction into the Missouri River. South of the plateau, the water flows into Arkansas, eventually making its way to the Mississippi. And here we are, two plus weeks later, with no rain, and when we drive up to the barns, the dirt is cracked. Luckily, that endophyte, 
You know, the one I talked about last time that infects the fescue. It's doing its thing, keeping the grass alive during the dry spells. In the garden, we've tried just about every type of watering system, from handheld hoses to the rainbird jet-type sprinklers to soaker hose. Now I'm using a drip tape, which is a flat hose of plastic tubing with tiny slits cut along the length, every four inches in my case. The trick to drip tape is using a pressure regulator that'll keep the water coming out of the yard hydrant at a lower pressure so it won't pop the drip tape apart. Starting at the yard hydrant, there's an inline filter to catch grit from the well, and then the pressure regulator. The header line is three-quarter inch black plastic water line that comes in a big roll. I have that leading into the garden with an array of connections, including three valves, each with its own feeder line. From these header lines, the drip tape is attached with its own valve. Adjusting the water is easy. The only caveat with this system is that it takes six to eight hours to give the garden a good soak. Drip tape means just that. You water by drips. You also have to be careful using the string trimmer around it. Trust me on this. We learned about this system of watering when I took Blind Hog to a small farm seminar. I just love seminars. This year's garden, though, has got to be one of the best ever. A great variety of plants, and I'm staying on top of the weeds for once. Our first year here, we tried plowing up a spot. Plowing? Plowing might have worked in Virginia where rocks were scarce. Here, it seemed like we hit nothing but rocks. The garden tiller we brought with us from Virginia? We sold it. Raised beds were the only way we found we could get enough soft dirt into which we could plant the vegetables. Blind Hog has used a backhoe for trenching long rows and beds for like the raspberries and blueberries. But here again, we refilled the trenches with compost. Our farm is just not suited for row crops. Three raised beds are made of cinder blocks stacked too high. About 16 foot long and 4 foot wide, I've topped them with 10 foot sections of PVC pipe for arches, making five hooped arches for each bed. This is perfect support for the floating row cover fabric. You know, that thin white gauzy looking stuff. We first filled the raised beds with a dump truck full of organic dirt that we bought from a local topsoil guy. We've kept adding more and more compost every year. I have a broad fork, a big heavy steel spiky digger tool with two handles. It's kind of like a capital letter H, but underneath the crossbar is a whole lot more little legs. You plunge the points into the dirt, stand up on the crossbar holding on to the two handles, and then you rock back and forth and you can uh, kinda easily turn the dirt over. The first couple digs are generally the most difficult, but once you get into the groove, it does go pretty well. We've made a couple more beds by trenching with the backhoe, tossing out the rocks, and using these and more to form retaining walls, filling with more compost. 
the rhubarb bed is one of these. I love rhubarb, but last year's drought killed my plants. All my plants. I didn't keep up with watering them and thinking they were safe under the hay mulch and sunshade I hung. Later on, when I lifted the shade, I found all the plants were gone. This year, things are much better. I pulled up the garlic this week, trimming the plants about five inches from the bulbs, and I filled two five-gallon buckets full of garlic. They're now drying on wire racks in the shade under the carport, and once dry, I'll be able to do the final trim and store them. The best bulbs are used for replanting in the fall, and the rest all safe for cooking, and I might even sell some. The University of Missouri Extension is really big into garlic, and I've attended a couple of their garlic seminars. Pretty much, if you find a garlic variety that works well in your soil, you save the best cloves for planting and eat the rest. Do that in succession for three or so years, and you'll have a variety of garlic perfectly suited to your garden and soil. Last year was the third year of planting like this, and I have to say the garlic is most uniform in bulb size, and no visible pests or rot either. I'm trying to grow Brussels sprouts for the first time. The plants were tall, so tall I had to take down the floating row cover, and I wondered if I needed to do something to them, you know, like prune or trim, and it's a good thing I looked. I didn't know you are supposed to cut off the tip of the plant and then strip off the bottom one-third leaves in order to till the little sprouts to do their thing. The tops I cut off looked like little heads of Chinese cabbage, cute curly packed leaves, and I have to say they tasted great. It gave me an idea. I used the tops of the Brussels sprouts as the main ingredient for a kimchi. I added in extra Swiss chard stems. According to my fermentation book, chard leaves do not ferment well, and tossed the rest of the bok choy in that had begun to bolt. A couple shredded carrots, minced garlic, onion, lots of dried red pepper, and it all went into a crock. I put the recipe on the website, blindhogandacorn.com, under the posting for episode 6. I guess we'll find out in a week or two if the experiment worked. I'll let you know. Hey, Blind Hog, you know what time it is? Time for me to finally get to say something. I'm saving the best for when it's needed, I would think. Listeners, make sure you have subscribed to Blind Hog and Acorn from wherever you get your podcasts. Get episodes downloaded automatically. And go to blindhogandacorn.com and visit the website. See pictures, read about the episodes, find the kimchi recipe. Perfect. You expecting less? Never. I'm growing the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. The corn is a short variety, should only get about five feet tall. It should also have orange kernels and if picked early enough, can be eaten like a sweet corn. Otherwise, I'm happy with dried corn that I can grind into my own cornmeal. The beans are a calico lima, and as they grow, they'll use the corn as their support. 
On the ground underneath is the squash, shadowing out the weeds. Pole beans of another variety are growing in a bed with watermelon and sweet potatoes. The pole beans will have purple pods, making it easy for me to find them later among all the green leaves. Speaking of color-coding vegetables, I'm trying a red okra. Should be able to find that early when it's small and tender, not like those huge 8-inch cow horns that you find that are way too tough to eat. Okra cooked in an iron skillet is so tasty, and pickled okra is nice to have in the winter. Over the bed with the pole beans, watermelon, and sweet potatoes is a 16-foot welded wire cattle panel arched over the whole bed like a big trellis. I plan on the pole beans climbing up on this, and I planted seeds on both ends. Eight-foot vines? They should meet in the middle. Perfect. Between the strawberry bed and the bed with the Brussels sprouts, cabbage, broccoli, and what used to be the garlic, is another 16-foot cattle panel arcing in between. Cucumbers are currently growing up on this. Cukes will hang down, making finding and picking a breeze. The poor strawberries are recovering from their varmint bunny assault. They're in the setting out runners stage. I'm thinking I may set out little planting containers into the dirt filled with compost and encourage the runners to set in these. I'll then be able to plant them later where I want, just picking up the container and replanting them in the perfect spot. Voila! Speaking of setting, the tomatoes are setting fruit, but none are ripe yet. Most will be used for canning up tomato sauce, filling up an entire pantry shelf. Some plain sauce and some herbed, but for now I'll just throw the tomatoes in the freezer in sacks until I get enough to make cooking down sauce and canning it a worthwhile endeavor. No peeling and coring tomatoes for me. I'll just chunk them into quarters and run them through the food mill. Chickens think the skins and seeds are such a treat. Cooking down by a good half, the pulpy juice will become sauce, ready for the jars. <laughs> My friend Meg sent me a tea towel with two ball canning jars embroidered on it, and with it are the words, Grab your balls! It's canning season! It makes me laugh every time I look at it. The collards and the kale are coming in, and I've been canning that as I go. I can fit four pints in my little pressure cooker, which is just fine. The big girl pressure canner holds like 17 quarts. When that's being used, it's a big heat source radiating out, even with the range top vent taking the exhaust outside. Hot work in the summer kitchen. July means I'll need to figure out and even begin planting the fall crops. Clyde's sliding garden planner is beside the seed packets and plans are being made. I'm thinking of planting cauliflower, a couple more cabbages for kraut, and maybe even some more broccoli. A nice hard-skinned winter squash, too, one with a French name I will not even attempt to butcher with my lousy pronunciation. 
In the meantime, we have harvesting to do, weeding to keep up with, and Japanese beetles to trap. Blind Hog made two super good traps from plastic one-gallon jugs with funnels. A Japanese beetle lure is positioned above the funnel, and any bug that lands on the lure will drop off, falling into the jug. The trick is to position these traps far away from the garden. The last thing you want to do is attract beetles to your plants. 50 yards south and 50 yards north is where they hang. Fred and Ethel are doing their share of weeding, my little goosey helpers. I've watched them as they pluck grass from underneath the vegetable plants. Well done, my feathered friends. And so, with the garden under control, knock wood, hay in the barn, and moving the herds around the pastures, we're managing to keep everything uniformly cut. This also helps with the horn and face flies that can be a bother to the livestock. Just keep moving, just keep moving. The dairy goats, now weaned, are in with the Spanish goats. The dairy mamas have adjusted quite well to their once-a-day milking, getting five to six quarts a day. That'll continue through July and into August. I like alpine goats as, although they might not have the largest output, they have a tendency to milk through, which means that they may actually stay lactating months after other breeds will slowly begin to taper off and need to be rebred and kid again before going back into milk. Some alpines have even been reported to milk through for several years from just that first pregnancy and kidding. That's a great thing. Well, however, we do like to travel and take the occasional trip off the farm. I really don't want to be tied down with milking year-round like that. So, for a while, it's good. Calpurnia had her calf, a little bull. I checked on her before breakfast and saw she was all gooey out the back end, went in, had breakfast, and came back out an hour later, and the calf plopped out. I was wiping his face and nose, free from all the birthing fluids and slime, when Dr. Tammy called. The doctor I'd worked with in Virginia who outed me about leaving their practice years before. Her timing still is most excellent. Little did she know she was calling me right after a delivery, just like in the good old days. It was good to talk with her as she plans her future retirement in a few years. Calpurnia was all baby talk with her calf, so I came on back to the house. Cal is a trained professional, and my presence was definitely not needed. However, old habits are hard to break, and an observed birth is generally one with a better outcome. The badger came over for lunch last week and was sitting on a bar stool, elbows on the oak plank, blind hog installed as an eating bar behind the kitchen sink. The oak board is about eight inches above the countertop, and so we had to get tall bar stools, and the ones we picked out have a pneumatic adjustment. One of the stools has a bit of a leak, and that was the one the badger was sitting on. All of a sudden, she began to sink, much to her surprise. 
I looked at her, her chin almost at the level of the eating surface, and asked, Are you getting small? She replied without skipping a beat, No, officer, I'm tall, I'm tall. And she finished up by saying, Well, I need you to step out of the car. I'm going to have to measure you. If you get the joke, virtual high five to you. I laugh so hard. When younger, the badger had confiscated my vinyl collection, and obviously it had made an impression. My heart did that Grinch thing growing three sizes. The badger is definitely an apple that did not roll far from the tree. Well, that's going to do it for this wild and crazy episode. Y'all take care, and we'll see you again real soon. Bye-bye.